bring in the field, keep them safe, bring them back safe, and we just pray for our nation, for godly wisdom, direction, and all things. In your name we pray this. Amen. Hi. It's <laughs> quite an entrance. Uh, Revelation 2. Now, um, this should not be anything new to you. Uh, I've already lied. I said last week we we're going to try to go and do chapters 2 and 3, and we're only going to get through chapter 2 tonight. So that's why if you look, there are two sides to your sheet. So we're going to do hopefully Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos, and Thyatira tonight. And then next week we'll hopefully do Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now real quick review here. If you weren't with us, Revelation obviously is a great book. And a lot of times people stay away from the book of Revelation because they say it's the book of Revelation. This is tough. This is difficult. We shouldn't get into it. This book promises a double blessing. This book says in Revelation 1, if you read this book, you're blessed. It says in the last chapter, if you read this book, you're blessed. I don't mean this selfishly, but I want to be blessed. I want to go deeper in my walk with the Lord. And the greatest way to understand who Jesus is is to study the book of Revelation. That word revelation literally means unveiling. In the original Greek, it carries this picture of having a statue with like a uh, sheet over it, if you will. And then all of a sudden, just pulling that sheet off and the statue is revealed. This book reveals the character of Christ. Now, the Gospels do a great job showing Jesus as the suffering Savior, as the Messiah that died on the cross for our sins. The book of Revelation shows him as the returning king, as the returning king coming back to reclaim his world, and he's coming back in judgment. And we had some slides last week where we put up about that, and we talked about the difference between the first coming and the second coming of Christ here. But tonight, we're going to build off that introduction. If you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to get a CD of that or get online and listen to it online. But here... The book of Revelation is divided up, and it has this great outline within itself, and it's found in verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Well, the things that John saw were chapter 1, the things that are chapters 2 and 3, and the prophecy starts in chapter 4. So what's going on here in chapters 2 and 3? John is banished to the island of Patmos. Can you go to the next slide there, Dustin, real quick? Just a quick review. Patmos there off the coast of Greece and also off the coast of Turkey. Present-day Turkey, you can see it circled. And go to the next slide real quick. And what happened is here, these are the seven main churches that were in uh, present-day Turkey, uh, Asia Minor. And this is where these books are being sent to. And obviously, as they're sent to these churches, it was then going to be spread throughout the rest of it there. Now... With that mindset, you go ahead and shut the projector off then for now. With that mindset, as you go through these seven churches, there's different ways to look at this, and we're going to try to cover each way a little bit. Each one of these churches has its own unique problems and situations. And I tell you this, I guarantee you that nearly any church in the world today fits into the category of one of these seven churches. One of these seven churches. We as Harvest, we fit into the church in one of these categories. Anybody else is going to fit in one of the categories of these churches. You can look through that and you can see that. These churches also were present-day churches at the time of John's writing. They were having real problems. So remember it from that perspective. Remember it also from the perspective of us today. We can learn from the problems that these churches went through. And lastly, a lot of people like to look at it from this perspective. And this, this is kind of a fun way to look into it. We're not going to get into a lot of detail of this. But a lot of people believe that these churches follow the chronological order of just events. That the angel of the church at Ephesus there was what was happening at the time of John's writing. Well, then at the end of John's writing, they started getting persecuted. The angel of the church at Smyrna, which takes us all the way to the last church, which is the church of Laodicea, which is the lukewarm church, would be us in present day time. So as you go through this, some people like to look at these seven churches in the order of chronology throughout the time, that they start in the time of Jesus, and you can kind of go through history, which leads to us, the lukewarm church today. Some interesting ways to look at it, and as we build on this, we'll kind of build on that a little bit as we go through it. But the main way we're going to teach this and go through it is these are real problems that those churches were facing at that time, 
but also real problems that we as churches face today too. Some of you may have been in different churches in your life. I'm willing to bet as you go through these churches, you can probably see the ones that you've been in. Hopefully you can see the good, but you're also probably going to see the bad. That's the one thing about the Bible. Anytime someone comes up and asks me, how do you know the Bible's real? Rather than the obvious fact of the Spirit leading and guiding the people to write it, to me, one of the greatest ways to know the Bible is real is the Bible is very honest. If mankind was really writing a book, they would not put all their dirty laundry in that book. The Bible reveals our character, both good and bad, and how we need to be changed in Christ Jesus. So with that mindset, a little bit of a long introduction there, but let's get right into this. So these are actual churches in the time of John that he's writing to with unique problems that also apply to churches for us today. So the first one... Verse 1 of chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and read all verses 1 through 7 to get the full context, then we'll come back and break it up. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. You have pre persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, if you look at your sheets, each church is broken down into four sections there. A praise, a rebuke, a correction, and a reward. Now, there's obviously a lot more detail with this, but... I had to fit it on one piece of paper, and so therefore, I didn't put all the detail that I wanted to. You can add this in as we go through as you take notes. But each one of these churches is going to have something that God praises them for, something they're rebuked about, something that needs to be corrected, and then also what their reward is. So let's look at the first church. Actually, real quick background, look at verse 2. I know we covered this last week, but I just want to repeat this. These things says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. That person is Jesus. We know that from studying out chapter 1. We know that the seven stars in his right hand, that's already described to us back in verse 20 of chapter 1. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Remember that word angel just literally means messenger. Some people believe that he's literally writing to an angel of the church. My personal opinion, take it or leave it, personal opinion, that word just means messenger. I believe it's probably more written to the leadership of the church. A little bit of background on that in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, it refers to anybody that leads people into salvation is referred to as a star. And so therefore, I kind of look at it as more he's writing to the leadership of the church. And so we know that the person holding the seven stars is Christ. The seven lampstands represent the church. That's the purpose of the church. Don't forget that. To shine for Christ, the lampstand. We're supposed to be out there shining. If a church isn't shining for the Lord, what is it doing? Too many churches have just become little country clubs where people show up and do what they want, and they go home and they pat themselves on the back. The purpose of the church is to go out there and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason why we're here. Don't ever forget that. So, Jesus, seven stars, seven lampstands. Now, Ephesus, good pat on the back. Did you check that out? They're, they're, they're praised for working hard for the Lord. Look at those words. Works, labor, tested, persevered, labored again. Those words literally mean work to the point of sorrow. It means work to the point of severe labor. It means beating the breast, literally, that these people got done working for the Lord. They were physically tired, and they were emotionally tired, and they were probably spiritually tired, but they worked for the Lord hard. That's something we could really learn a lot about. 
is the purpose of the church is we're down here to work. We have all of eternity to have rest. All of eternity to have rest. So often people come up and say how difficult the Christian life is. It is difficult. You have all of eternity and I have all of eternity to sit back and to sit on a cloud and enjoy the view. But while we're down here on this world, God says, I've called you for a purpose and your purpose is to work, to labor. Not to the point of exhaustion that we feel like we can't even lift our head and say, God bless you but to really redeem the time. I've, I've shared with you before, I love to put verses on my fridge. And one of the verses I have on my fridge is a verse that says we're supposed to redeem the time. If we really believe time's short, we want to do everything we can to work for the Lord. We want to get out there and do something. So the church at Ephesus was a good church. They were out there working, working hard for the Lord, and look at everything that they're doing. Their labor, their patience, they're not bearing those that are evil, they're testing the apostles that are fake, they're persevering, they're laboring. To the point of, look at verse 3, that they're not weary yet. They're so ready to go one more round. Ah, that's what I like to hear. Here's the problem with the church of Ephesus. Look at verse 4. They left their first love. They were so busy serving God, they forgot that they were serving God. You ever got that way? I've seen lots of Christians that way. They are so busy serving God, they forget why they're serving the Lord. Instead of having a relationship with Christ, they have service with Christ. Yes, they're out there doing stuff. They're, they're helping in the back with Sunday school. They're serving in the worship. They're cleaning the church. They're doing so much. But here's the thing. Don't ever forget this, guys. Your service to the Lord is not your relationship with the Lord. If your service with the Lord is your relationship with the Lord, that means it's just religion. Your relationship with the Lord is not based on what you do. Your relationship with the Lord is based on your heart. See, too often we look at somebody and say, they're right with God. Well, how do you know? Well, they're reading their Bible. They're, they're praying. They're the first one to serve to clean the church. They're the first one to help in the back. They're the first one to do this, the first one to do that. That's all great. That's wonderful. But I don't know their heart. See, the church at Ephesus, if you would just look at the church at Ephesus, you would say, what a great church. They're working their tails off for Jesus. But Jesus says, I look at your heart. I don't have your heart. Jesus says, I don't care about the other stuff. I want your heart. That's what he says. Turn your to Jeremiah chapter 2. Let's talk about this for a little bit. It comes back to that notion of God doesn't force us into a relationship with him. He wants us to want him. He wants us to want him. He wants us to choose to follow him. He wants us to choose to worship him, to choose to read. It's not a relationship of God says, James, every day from 7 to 7.45, you have to read my word. And then from 7.45 to 8.30, you have to pray. I'll give you an hour off. And then from 9.30 to 11, it's serving widows. No, that's a force. That's not a heart. God says he wants me to just get up on my own in the morning and say, Lord, I want to spend time with you. He wants me to say, Lord, I just want to pray. Lord, I just want to set that remote down and just spend some time in your word. He wants me to want him. Well, see, the church at Ephesus sure looked good, but their heart wasn't there. Jeremiah chapter 2. Now, I'm actually going to read this out of the New Living Translation. I love the way this verse reads in the New Living Translation. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1. It says, The Lord gave me another message. He said, go and shout this message to Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. Listen to this verse. I remember how eager you were to please me. As a young bride long ago, how you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. I love that verse. I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago, how you loved me and followed me even through the barren wilderness. Have you ever seen a young couple in love, right? They just can't help but be around each other. They, they sit as close as they possibly can. I remember when Dawn and I uh, first were dating, going back you know, years ago, um, we had this big car. It was a Ford, 80, 84, 85 Ford LTD. It was huge. We called it the Brown Beast. And um, she would sit in the middle section. You know, so that way we could sit right beside each other as we drove everywhere. And, you know, you always cuddled up close to each other. And, and you just had that love, you know, that you couldn't stop. 
And then what happens? Well, I still love Dawn, but now she wants space. I don't know exactly what that means, but if I get too close, she says, space. She's building me a new house. So the point is that as the love goes on, obviously the love changes in some ways. What Jesus is saying here is, hey, remember when we were in love? You wanted me. You, you, you couldn't wait. I remember that. I remember when I first got saved. I remember I'd get up early in the morning because I just wanted to. I was going through the book of Isaiah, and I could not wait to study the book of Isaiah. I remember when I first got saved, I remember that uh, one of my sisters had the car, and so the car wasn't home, and I wanted to go to Wednesday night Bible study so bad. My dad was overworking at my grandma's house, and, I, and he had a vehicle, so I got on my bike that had a flat tire, rode my bike to grandma's house to get my dad's truck just so I could go to church. That's how bad I wanted to go. Now, if that would happen today, it'd be like, oh, let's catch him next week. You know, we look for reasons not to go. My kid coughed. I probably shouldn't go for a month. You know, we look for these reasons to not go sometimes. And God says, what happened to that? What happened to that fire, that excitement of setting the alarm early, of saying, you know what, I don't care what's on television tonight. I'm just not going to flip through all the channels to find something. I got my Bible sitting right there. Or you know what, they need help at church? Yeah, I'll be there. What happened to that? See, Jesus is saying is, you left your first love. Jesus is basically standing there saying, what happened? Was, wasn't I good enough? Oh, yeah, Lord, I still love you. I still love you. This is what happens a lot with us as Christians. I've been walking with the Lord for 18 years, and one of the most dangerous words in Christianity is comfortable. You become comfortable. You're comfortable in the church. Church will always be there. I mean, we're going to be here every Wednesday at 7 or 8.30 at 10. So it's not a big, big deal. My Bible, I mean, it's always going to be there. The lessons are always going to be there. The devotionals are always going to be there. We become comfortable with it. Now, I'm not saying resort back to a legalism, but resort back to a passion of wanting and desiring more. Think back to when you first got saved. You just you couldn't get enough. Think back to when you had that fire and your, and your faith was on fire. You couldn't get enough. Verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. He goes, go back to the beginning. When I do marriage counseling with a couple and I start to see them fall out of love, one of the first things we do is after we go over the roles spiritually, I usually stop and ask them, when's the last time you went out on a date? When's the last time you held hands? When's the last time you prayed together? When's the last time where she was sitting on the couch and you just went over and sat right beside her? Not the eight foot rule, but you just got right beside her. Go back and do those things at first and fall in love again. Same thing spiritually. Sometimes you've got to fall in love with Jesus Christ again. And that's what happened here with Ephesus. They were so busy serving God, they forgot why they were serving Him. I've done that. I've been so busy going to a hospital visit, then to a funeral, and to a wedding, and to a counseling. And you know what? It's not that I'm not giving these things over to the Lord. I'm so busy serving God, you feel Jesus just want to tap you on the shoulder and say, James, let's spend some time together. Jesus, I'm spending all day with you. He goes, no, you're spending all day with them in my name. How about just you and me? Remember when the disciples first got back from one of their missionary journeys? Remember what Christ did? He pulled them off and he said, you're going to come out to the wilderness with me to a secluded place for a while because you need to hang out just with me. We need that time with Christ alone. Repent and do those things at first. Why? Verse 5, or you lose your lampstand. That means you lose your effectiveness. A flashlight with no batteries. A lamp with no light bulb. You look good, but you're not serving your purpose. The purpose is not necessarily serving. The purpose is a heart changed in Christ that therefore then wants to serve. Let's not get the works above our relationship with the Lord. Let's get back on fire for him. And what's the reward? 
Well, the reward is found in verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. How do you overcome? Well, the answer is found in that verse we put at the bottom of the sheet, 1 John 5, 5. He who is he who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You want to be an overcomer? Get born again and saved. That means you've overcome the world. Now, once again, it's easy to pick on Ephesus. They were doing good things. They were working hard for the Lord. And also verse 6, because of this, you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now the Nicolaitans, real quick side note on this. If you're taking notes, that guy's name, Nicolaitans, literally means destruction of the people. Destruction of people. What most commentators believe that happened with the Nicolaitans was there's this guy that he was part of the early church. Some of them actually believe he was one of the original seven that was chosen to serve there in the book of Acts. We don't know for sure. But what happened is this guy started having a, uh, it sounds like a power trip, where his main focus became him. The emphasis was him and this hierarchy of, of him over the people. Now, we look at that and we say, well, of course that's not the way it is because everything is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you right now, you don't have to look too far to find a church that's built off a of man. If you find a church built off a of man, that's a dangerous place to be in. Because what happens is the people get hurt when they build a ministry or church off a person. The church has to be built on Jesus Christ. It has to be built. I've shared this story with you before. I can remember when I took discipleship class back with Pastor Rich uh, 18, 17 years ago. There was a group of us all new to the church, new to our faith, and we were all going through the discipleship class together. And I remember Rich, and I, I don't know how well you know Pastor Rich, but he's an ornery little thing. And he set this guy up so bad. We're sitting there after discipleship class. We're talking about Harvest. We're talking about Pastor Crager, who was a pastor at the time. And I remember Rich looked at this guy, and he goes, you know that church built off one man. And, and this guy goes, oh, yeah, I know. But, you know, Jim's doing a great job out there. Pastor Crager's doing a great job. And Rich goes, no, that one man is Jesus Christ. And I never forgot that. But the church is built off of Christ. If you put somebody up on a pedestal and you look up to them, and that person falls off the pedestal, they're going to fall smack dab right on you. You don't look up to a man. You look up to Christ. The Nicolaitans had this power trip thing going. Boy, you see people in the church today that the only thing they care about is their little group, their little clique, their little power thing. God says no. But as always, verse 7, he who has ear to hear, let him hear you got to want to listen. If you don't want to hear it, there's nothing you can do about that. How often do we preach and no one wants to hear? You have to want these things to be different. You have to want to hear. So that's the first church, the church at Ephesus. Working hard for the Lord from an outside perspective. They look good. They sound good. They look great. But their hearts become cold. If that's you today, best thing to do, go back to the beginning. When were you on fire for Christ? When were you on, on just just in passion for the Lord. Get back into it. Do those things you were doing at first. I bet you were in the Word. I bet you were serving. I bet you were in prayer. I bet you just couldn't wait to worship. You were in the Lord. And as you were in the Lord, this, this fire was there, that excitement for God. Well, it's a fun thing to be on fire for the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. That's Ephesus. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about Ephesus here before we move on? Yeah, that's a good one there, Martha, Martha. You know, Mary's an amazing person there when you look about the story of Mary and Martha in, in the Gospels. Martha is what I always call the typical firstborn, just never happy, never has any joy, and always just focused on making sure all I's dotted and T's are crossed. And so just set up, you know, just has to have everything perfect. Mary, every time you see Mary in the Bible, do you know where she's at? Feet of Jesus. Go study that one time. Anytime you see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. Some of you, now listen, I'm not picking on anybody in particular. The church needs Marthas. We need those people that say, this is how it has to get done and this is what we have to do. God bless the Marthas. I'm not a Martha. I'm <laughs> just not. So 
Thankfully, we have Marthas that get things done. But you also need the Marys to counterbalance the Marthas to say, hey, sometimes we just need to sit at the feet of Jesus. But what about the dishes? The dishes will get done. Sit at the feet of Jesus. What about the windows? We'll clean them later. Just sit at the feet of Jesus. And sometimes we just got to remember we have to sit at the feet of Christ. Mary's a good example of that. Marthas aren't bad. We need Marthas in the body of Christ. But also don't forget the Marys, the Marys that just want to sit at the feet of Christ. I know some of you are thinking, if everybody sits at the feet of Jesus, nothing's going to ever get done. Well, that's why you guys are Marthas and not Marys. So, does anybody else have anything they want to say here before we move on? Okay, let's do, uh, we can do Smyrna here uh, real quick. And it says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, these things say the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, that they are, excuse me, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things that suffer, but you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now note here in Smyrna, there is no rebuke. There is no rebuke in the church of Smyrna. Why? Because they're going through a difficult time. Now this is a very important point. Very important point. I know we're running short on time, so I'm just going to give you the references, and you guys can go back and study that out some more here tonight on your own. If you get a chance, go to James chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1. James 1 and 1 Peter 1, because it all talks about trials and tribulations. And James 1, it says, In this you greatly rejoice. He goes, Count it all joy when you fall into trials and temptations. In 1 Peter, it says, In this you greatly rejoice because your faith will grow. Listen, if you're going through a tough time in life, the last thing you need is someone to come to tell you what to do. Now, I'm not saying we ignore sin. I don't mean that at all. But if you are truly going through a trial, a wilderness time in life, God says, I'm here for you. How many of you have ever gone through a difficult time in life and you just think, what did I do wrong? Seriously, God, what did I do wrong? Why, what are you trying to do to me? You're just trying to kick me while I'm down? You can't even give me an opportunity to get my head above water? Then you're in the church at Smyrna right now. God is not trying to rebuke you. If anything, he's here to encourage you. And that's what he says. He says to Smyrna, I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty. I bet you some of you today feel poor. Maybe literally feel poor. You can't even scrounge up the money to pay the utilities, the electric bill, the food. I don't know. And you're like, Lord, we have to trust you because we have nothing. Maybe some of you feel emotionally poor. Lord, I can't handle one more thing. Lord, I can't handle one more thing. Maybe some of you are spiritually poor. Lord, I read, I pray, I study, I serve, but I don't see any change. God says, did you check this out in verse 9? He goes, you're rich. I don't feel rich. Listen, then you're calling Jesus a liar. He says, you're rich. But what am I rich in? You're rich in the blessings of God. Now, right here is where you either stop and you believe that, and you catch yourself and you say, you know what? I am blessed. I have Christ as my Savior. I am saved and born again in Jesus. I'm filled with the Spirit. I have an eternal mansion and home waiting for me in heaven. I am blessed. Or you stay negative and you say, blessed. Well, if this is blessed, I hate to see what cursed is. I'm being honest. If that's the negative attitude you have, God, I, I, I believe this. I think he sits up in heaven shakes his head and says, what else am I supposed to do? Salvation's not good enough to bring you joy. A mansion's not good enough to bring you joy. The Holy Spirit himself lives inside your heart. That's not good enough. See, God's never going to try to compete. If you have convinced yourself that you're cursed, if you've convinced yourself that your life is the worst life ever and it's absolutely horrible and God doesn't care, 
I think God steps back and says, listen, if you want to go live in the pig slot for a while, go live in the pig slot. It's not that he's being mean. It's not that he's being angry. But it's almost like sending your kid to your room. Listen, if you're just going to fuss and whine and complain, just go to your room. When you're done fussing, whining, complaining, come back out. I think some of us get sent to our room spiritually because we don't believe this. We look at our works, our tribulation, our poverty, but we ignore those four important words. But you are rich. The Bible talks about the inexpressible riches of the glory of God. Now, we either believe that or we don't, that we are blessed in the Lord. They are given endurance in tough times, and they're not rebuked because God's not here to kick us while we're down. Jump back to chapter 1 real quick. Look at verse 17. When John was given this vision, it says in verse 17, And when I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as dead. But look, he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. See, some of you are knocked down to the floor in life, and you feel like God's just stepping on you. No, he's reaching his hand out to you and saying, don't be afraid. I love verse 17. He laid his right hand on me. Now, don't you just envision that? You're going through that tough time. The marriage is falling apart. The life's falling apart. Work's falling apart. But then the hand of God just touches you. And he says, I'm here. In fact, it says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, once again, you either believe that or you don't. Now, if I, I can't convince you of that. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe Jesus, there's nothing I can say to you. But that's the truth. It says in, in the book of Jeremiah 29 verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans not to harm you, but to bring you peace. God's not out here to knock you down. He's here to bring you peace. Jesus said, in this world you have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus said, I have come to bring you peace, not as the world gives, but only as I can give. Jesus comes to give peace. So what happens? We'll look at verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which are about to suffer. See, God's not trying to hide the fact. He, you're going to suffer. We've been talking about this on Sunday mornings. I'm not trying to be negative here, but you're going to go through tough times. I'm going to go through tough times. It's a fact. Maybe tonight's one of those tough times. If not tonight, tomorrow, this week, you will suffer. You will probably feel like verse 10 that you're thrown into the prison. But look at this, verse 10. It's a test. And it's only going to last a while. You will have tribulation 10 days. Some people believe that that 10 days is an historical context talking about the Roman Empire there. It's kind of an interesting thing. But you're going to suffer. You're going to go through difficult times. But look at the last phrase there, verse 10. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. God says, endure. Endure. Just as we've been talking about on Sundays, Paul said, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Endure till the end. He's telling the church at Smyrna, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know you feel like you can't do anything here. But look at verse 9. You are rich. And verse 10, be faithful. Don't give up. And what's the reward for them? He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What's overcome again? First John 5, 5, born again and saved in Christ. What's the second death? Hell. Second death is hell. Your first death is the physical death that you and I will die. The second death is eternal death. If we are born again, we don't face the second death. It goes back to that phrase, and I always screw this up, so forgive me for this. If you are born once, you will die twice. If you are born twice, you'll die once. I think I got that right for the first time. If you are born once, just physically, you will die twice. You will die physically in your flesh, and you will die for eternity in hell. If you are born twice, once in the flesh, and also born again in the Spirit through Christ, you'll only die once. You'll physically die. But you won't taste the second death, which is the death of hell. He says, overcome. Don't give up. So, I already lied again. I thought we could get through four, and we only got through two. We'll be in Revelation literally until Jesus returns. Um, it's one of those things where you don't want to go too fast. There's so much good stuff here, and it will. the pace does pick up a little bit as we get a little bit farther along in the book here. So we did Ephesus and Smyrna. Next week we're going to start hitting uh, Pergamos and uh, Thyatira there too. But just a real, real quick reminder, if you're in Ephesus right now, you look good, you sound good, but you know your heart's not right, go back to the beginning. 
Go back to the beginning. You'll be blessed. Maybe you're in Smyrna right now. Life is just tough. Endure. Be faithful. God is there. He will get you through it. No doubts. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here before we go ahead and close up with a word of prayer? Alrighty. Thank you for coming out. Let's close up with a word of prayer and we'll let you go. Heavenly Father, we just come to you now. We just do pray that we would truly have a heart that's focused on you. In the name of Jesus, go before this. We want that heart that's on fire for you. Not because we have to, but because we choose to. But help us to make good, godly choices that take us deeper in you, Lord. Not pull us away from you, but to go deeper in you. That's our heart's desire. Lord, help us to shine like that lampstand at work, at home, and in school, wherever we're at, to truly be on fire for you. And Lord, if there's someone here tonight in, in, in the Smyrna, it's just life is hard. Encourage them. Uplift them. Show them that they're spiritually rich in you. Show them that they remain faithful to the end. You will take care of them. We lift this up in your name. Amen. Well, you guys have a good week and God bless.